It was, uh, couldn't get here quick enough. We were really excited to get back to Texas, get back to Bernie, get back to Bernie Bible. It's great to see your faces. For those of you who do not know me, my name is Kelly Darty, and uh, my wife Arlene, my oldest daughter Lauren is here with me. We, um, we were members here for 20 years, and I just a year and a half ago moved back to my home state, Louisiana, to help take care of my parents, whose health is, is um, not real good. Uh, but it's, it's really good to be back. I was on staff at His Hill for 23 years, and so it's, uh, it's good to see the students. And, uh, and the Michaels, hey guys, I haven't seen you in a long time. Hey. So anyway, let's, uh, let's turn to Scripture together. Let's go to Galatians. We were, I was with you a couple of months ago, and we looked at Galatians chapter 1. I'm in a Bible study. We have a home Bible study, and we're working through Galatians. And right now, we're just finishing up chapter 3, so I thought I'd share with you some of the things that we've seen there. So in chapter 3 of Galatians, we're going to start in verse 23. Now, just to give you a little bit of the context, because you really need to know the context when reading Scripture. If not, if not you can often get into a lot of trouble. But the whole idea is Paul is addressing these Galatian believers who have been infiltrated by a false teaching... Uh, that has come from what is called the Judaizers, who are wanting these Christians to adopt the, the, uh, the Old Covenant and depend upon it in order to be saved by Christ. And so Paul is really upset with them. In chapter 1, he says, I'm just shocked that you would, you would desert what you have proclaimed to believe in uh, for a, another gospel, which really is not another gospel, is what he says. Uh, that you would depend upon yourself, because that's what the law is about. It's, 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 it's dependence upon yourself to live righteous. And the whole thing, what we'll see this morning, is that the law's purpose is to show us that that's impossible. And, and so they're, they're, wanting, they're, they're wanting these Christians to go back to that, depend upon themselves to live righteous. And he's saying, it's never been about yourself. It has always been about the Lord. And so it, you need to live by faith in Christ, not only for salvation, but for the life of salvation. And so that's what he's getting at. He's telling it's not about depending upon yourself, but, but, but depending upon Christ by faith. And with that, we'll pick up in verse 23. So let's stand together, and we'll start there in verse 23 of chapter 3. But before faith came... We were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your patience with us and your pursuit of us. We thank you for your insistence upon all that you are for us. And so, Lord, as we look at your word, we do so with dependence upon you. 
We ask for your wisdom, both as the one who is preaching and the others who are listening, that we would allow you to work in our hearts, Lord, what you intend to do, what only you can do. We thank you that we can ask this of you because this is what you intend. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So there's some interesting pictures in in these verses. And if you remember, those of you who have been... Uh, who have heard me speak before, I, I love pictures. I need pictures. I'm, I'm just one of those people that has got to have a picture. And there's, there's lots of them here. We're going to see that there is freedom and there is maturity for the one who lives by faith. There is freedom and there is maturity for the one who will live by faith in Christ. First of all, in verse 23... He speaks of this maximum security lockdown that is the reality of the law. Again, in verse 23, he says, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Two words there, custody and shut up. There's an incredible picture here of what the law does to a person. I think we can identify with this. So often it's really easy for us who are Gentiles to say, well, this isn't applicable to me. I'm I'm not a Jew. I'm not having to battle with with keeping the old covenant law. But, you see, that's that's really missing what's being said. I mean, it's really ignoring what's being said because this letter is written to Gentiles like us who are depending upon the law, who are depending upon themselves. And so it's very applicable to us. It is to me. I was in this room one time. A member of this church came to me. We were standing right over here. And he said he was just frustrated with the Christian life. Burned up. And his statement to me was this. How am I supposed to live this? How am I supposed to do this? Do I just fake it until I make it? Good, honest question. One that I think many Christians would say, don't ask that question, just do it. Just fake it. As a staff person at His Hill, once had a student come up to me in in a crowd of people. Let me tell you what this student was like. He was one of the more popular students. He was tall, dark and handsome, and a great athlete. In other words, just absolutely disgusting. <laughs> and in the middle of a crowd, he just stepped out in front of the in the middle of this crowd and just burst out and said, "We have to talk now." And the rest of the students looked at him and thought, "Oh my goodness, what's going on?" I said, "Well, let's go talk. Let's go sit down." And this was a guy that a lot of people wanted to be like, would want to emulate. We went into my office, and before he could sit down, he just started to cry. And it was a, it was a cry that I, I can't even imitate. It, it came from so far within. It was just a bellowing cry, and he said, I can't take this anymore. Everybody thinks that I have my life together. Everybody thinks that I am doing fine, but I am not, and I can't take it anymore. And then there's another believer that I know. One that grew up in a strong Christian home and 
grew up in a solid church. He attended Bible school and Bible college. He graduated with a degree, only to come out and say regarding the quit Christian life, I've had it and I quit. And that person was me. I have tried this. It doesn't work. I quit. No, listen, anytime Christ becomes an it, you're in trouble. Because it doesn't work. So you see, maybe you can identify with one of these three. The frustration of the Christian life, and not the joy of it, not the rest of it, not the peace of it. As a matter of fact, all of that seems more like a fairy tale. Maybe, if we're honest, more like a lie. And it's not for us until we die and get to go to heaven. Hopefully. Then it will be a reality. Maybe you identify with that. And if you do, then you do identify with the believers in Galatia. You do identify with those that Paul has to address here. It's a frustrating place to be. It's a hopeless place to be. And that's what he's describing here as he describes being held in custody. The word custody actually means to be held in prison. I think sometimes we really water down, we really don't give enough thought as to what it means to depend upon me, to live in the prison of my best. So let's think about it some. What is prison like? I I found this really interesting. An inmate here in the Texas prison system wrote an article, and he asked other inmates a couple of questions. And one of them that really grabbed my attention was the question, what's the worst thing that happened to you in prison? And so these are some of the worst things that happened to these men in prison. The first one said, being in a riot where people were stabbed to death. That was the worst thing. Another one said, it was the roaches and the spiders and other bugs that crawl all over me at night. Third person said this, it's being violated repeatedly and the guards and the administration refusing to help me. Another person said that it's seeing people get extorted, then beat, then killed. And then a, a fifth person said, it's, it's getting old, losing years that I can never replace. It's not a great place to be. And Paul is saying that is the place. That is the place for the Christian who will depend upon himself and not upon Christ. What does the Bible say about prison? How does it describe it? In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 3 it says this, Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 9 it says, For which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment. And then in Psalm 69, verse 33, For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his who are prisoners. So three ways that we find in Scripture that prison has been described from Scripture, it's this, ill-treated, suffering hardship, and being in need. In other words, the Bible describes prison as a place of want. A place of need. 
What about Paul? He's the one that wrote this. What was it like for him? We know that he spent several years in prison. What was it like? I found this from the Christian History Magazine. One of its contributors did a study, and this is what he came up with. This is what the prisons were like under the Roman occupation in the the Roman Empire. It reads like this. Roman imprisonment was preceded by being stripped naked and then flogged. A humiliating, painful, and bloody ordeal. The bleeding wounds weren't or went untreated. Prisoners uh, sat in painful leg or wrist chains, mutilated. Blood-stained clothes were not replaced, even in the cold of winter. In his final imprisonment, Paul asked for a cloak, presumably because of the cold. Most cells were dark, especially the inner cells of a prison, like the one Paul and Silas inhabited in Philippi. Unbearable cold lack of water, cramped quarters, and sickening stench from the few toilets made sleeping difficult and waking hours miserable. Male and female prisoners were sometimes incarcerated together, which led to sexual immorality and abuse. Prison food, when available, was poor. Most prisoners had to provide their own food from outside sources. When Paul was in prison in Caesarea, Felix, the procreator, gave orders to the centurion that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Because of the miserable conditions, many prisoners begged for a speedy death, and others simply committed suicide. This is what Paul has in mind when he speaks of being locked up. This is what it is to live according to yourself. It is a miserable place. It is a place of want. It is a place of need. It is a desperate place. But the good news is that this is not the kind of life Scripture describes for the believer. Not for the one who has placed his faith in Christ, but that life is one of peace. It is one of rest. It is one of victory. Well, how is it possible? How does one come to know this better, this promised life? Well, it's the opposite of what these Judaizers are pushing The Judaizer is pushing that this comes from what you can accomplish, how well you can be like Jesus, but it's the opposite of that. This life is possible because of the work of Christ. Verses 24 to 25 speaks of the education of the believer. In verse 24, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The word tutor actually means guardian. So it's not the idea of of a teacher, but it's one that that would be the custodian or the supervisor. What What often was, what was normal at this time was that there would be, Slaves appointed to oversee the children. 
So each child would have a slave as a guardian. That guardian would be in charge. It would literally, that that slave, he would literally regulate the life of the child. He would be in charge of the discipline of the child. He would make sure the child is where the child is supposed to be. Make sure the child has uh, has been brought to school, has been brought back. Make sure the child does not get into things that that child should not get into. So he regulated the life. And Paul is saying this is what the law is like. The law regulates. The law supervises. The law dictates every area of the life. But it does so for the purpose of making you ready for Christ. Exposes your need, helps you recognize your need to be ready. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 8. We'll be looking at Hebrews at his hill this week, so a little bit of a preview for you guys. Hebrews is the book about Christ being better, any, better than anything that is good. And the writer of Hebrews will go through a bunch of good things. What's interesting about these good things is that every one of them is something that's given by God. And so often we can take what God gives us that is good and actually put it in the place of Christ who is better. We do it in a lot of ways. We do it with, um, we do it with worship. We do it with doctrine. There's a lot of good things. We do it with fellowship. A lot of things that God has given us that are good, but not better than Jesus. And we put put them in the place of Christ. So the writer is going through the, he goes through this book and he explains to them how Christ is better. And then he gets to chapter 8. And there, beginning in verse 5, he talks about how Christ's ministry is a better ministry than the Old Covenant ministry because the Old Covenant ministry was just a shadow. It was just a picture Verse 5, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises... For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second covenant. So Christ comes and he is replacing the old with the new. Now what do we do with the old now that Christ has replaced it with the new? Verse 13, when he said a new covenant... He has made the first obsolete, but whatever has become obsolete is growing old and ready to disappear. Now, we don't have a lot of time to go into this, so just to cut straight to it, the problem with the old is me. All of the old depends upon me. So when he says that the old is ready to disappear, he's saying that I am ready, dependence upon me is ready to go. 
In the next chapter, in verse 8, he says this, the Holy Spirit, what is wrong with that? What's wrong with depending upon me? I mean, it's a good thing to want to be right, isn't it? It's a good thing to want to do right, to be like Jesus. But look at what verse 8 says. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present times. It was just a picture. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. You see, the problem with the old is that it cannot free you. It only imprisons you. As you continue to depend upon yourself, you try harder. You study more. And you find that you are more and more in need. Maybe even like me, after all the education, to just come to the point and say, I quit. I don't want it. And I found that was the best place for me to be because the Lord said, well, good. Because what I had quit was not Christianity. It was what I had created and called Christianity. It was my idol. And at that point, the Lord was, was, was able to show me what truth is. In verse 14, it says this, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The reality of the new is a clean conscience. It's not a daily reminder of my failure, but a daily reminder of His finished work. All the difference in the world. The law cannot change the promise that is found in Galatians. It can't, doesn't change the truth that is taught in the Old Covenant. It doesn't change the truth of the law. Jesus himself said, I did not come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill. So the law cannot change the promise, and the law is not greater than the promise, but the law is not contrary to the promise. They work together to bring the sinner to the Savior. The old exposes your need, and the new provides for the need. So what does this mean for us? He's talking to Jews here. What does it mean for us? Well, look at the wording in verses 26 to 29. We'll look first at 26 and 27, back to Galatians. In verse 26, For you are all sons of God through faith, In Christ Jesus. 
For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's a change here. Paul's made a shift in his terminology. You see, there's a change from the first person being we and our, according to verse 23 and 24. Verse 23, he speaks about we were kept in custody. And and then in verse uh, 24, he says, um, has become our tutor. The law has become our tutor. So he's making a, a shift here from the first person to the second person. In verse 26, he says, for you. So a shift from we and our to you. So now what he's doing, he's talking directly to the Galatians. He's talking straight to the Gentile now. The Gentile that's been told that you must depend upon the old. You must depend upon yourself in order to be saved in Christ. And now he's saying, okay, now this is what's true for the Jew. Now this is what's true for you. And what is it? That we have been made sons of God. In verse 27, it's worded like this. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Clothed yourself. Another picture, incredible picture. We've seen the picture of, picture of prison. We've seen the picture of a tutor. And now we see the picture of being made an adult of being brought into full adult standing. To clothe yourself, an incredible thing in the Jewish custom, where they would literally take the child and remove his childish clothes and replace them with adult garments. Where they would literally put a new tunic on Signifying that this is now an adult with full adult standing and privileges. This person is grown up. And so he's telling the Galatian believers that they have been laid hold of by Christ and they have been brought into full adult standing. They have been made joint heirs with Christ. Look at how it's described, how he goes on to describe it in chapter 4, verse 1. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, though he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the element mental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Clothed with Christ. What once 
was true of us no longer is. Ephesians. This is truth. This is your reality. Now the problem is so often we refuse to identify with what is true. We refuse to identify with what is real. Sometimes because we can't control it maybe. Maybe it's a little easier for us to accept depending upon myself because I know how to control that. I know what to expect. Moving back to Louisiana, uh, one of the things that's been interesting to watch is just how people of the community treat me. Because now my name is on all of my dad's finances, uh, property, business. Because dad has Alzheimer's and he's, he's, he's to the point now to where there's absolutely no way he could, he could manage any of this. And so it's really interesting to watch how people treat me. Now I'll walk into the bank and the whole bank says hello. It's, it's really funny to see. Like I've done something. I don't have to have account numbers memorized. I, I just walk up and say, you know, I want to take this out of this account. I want to transfer this from this. Put this in that one. That's all I have to say. I don't need numbers. It's really funny. It's never been like that for me. Some of the purchases that I've had to make are things that I never would have dreamed of before moving. Some of the checks I've signed, I would have been in hiding after signing them before moving. But I've done this with confidence. Now let me tell you what my confidence has been in. My confidence is in my dad's accomplishments. My confidence is in my dad's accomplishment. And in the same way, this is how we are to live as heirs of Jesus. We are given the privilege of living with confidence in his accomplishment. We don't have to figure out a way to try and build our confidence up so we can do this. But because of the finished work of Christ, we have all the confidence that there is for us to get up out of this room and go out those doors and live the life that we were created to live. How is that possible? Verse 27 For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. You see, it is not a work of ourself. This baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, this is the work of Christ, not our own doing. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Just back a few pages. 1 Corinthians 12, I'm going to start in verse 12. reads like this, verses 12 and 13 of chapter 12. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. 
For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. The only reason you and I are a part of the body of Christ is because of the work of the Holy Spirit. We have been made one in Christ because of His work, not because of ours. All one in Christ Jesus. And that's, how, that's, that's what he's building up to when he gets to verse 28, a verse that has been grossly misinterpreted. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The Pharisee used to pray like this. And from what I understand, uh, the, the, the more uh, legalistic, the more um, devout Jew still prays this way. I thank thee, God, that I am a Jew and not a Gentile. A man, not a woman. And a free man, not a slave. But all of this, all of these distinctions are removed in Christ. What does that mean? Warren Wiersbe says this, This does not mean that our race, our political status, our sex is changed at conversion. But it does mean that these things are of no value or handicap when it comes to our spiritual relationship with God through Christ. We have got to look at this verse within the context. You've heard me say it before. If I tell you that I love Arlene, you know what that means. Then if I tell you I love Jeff, you know what that means. At least you better. Because of the context. You have got to read Scripture within the context. And what is the context? The context is that one does not have to be a Jew in order to be a Christian. One does not have to live according to the old covenant in order to live the new covenant. One does not have to live in dependence upon themselves in order to live the life of Christ. But there are churches that will not see it within the context. There are churches in our society who about 20, 25 years ago decided that it was okay to ordain women to be pastors. And now those same churches are ordaining homosexuals to be pastors. But this would be the logical conclusion if Paul is saying there's no longer sexual distinctions for the child of God to live by. But this would contradict what he teaches in other places of Scripture, as well as the context of this passage. In other parts of Scripture, Paul says this. He says there is a distinction between the Jew and the Gentile in the presentation of the gospel in Romans 1, 16, in Romans 2, 9 and 10. 
He says there is a distinction between the slave and the free man in Ephesians 6, 5, when he explains to the slave how he's supposed to serve his master. And then, what's his name? The slave. Anisimus? Okay, I don't have to look that up. You're right, right? Okay. Paul actually sends him back to Philemon as a slave. And then, of course, 1 Timothy 2.12 and Ephesians chapter 5 clearly show that there is a distinction between the role of man and the role of woman living out the image of God. So what's he saying then? It's real simple. Our external does not determine our eternal. Or, our internal. Our external does not determine our internal or our eternal. Matter of fact, it's the internal that is to impact the eternal and dictate our external. It is the internal that is to impact our eternal and dictate our external. One of the most influential guest speakers that we ever had at his hill was Dr. John Dale. Now, if you were to see him walk down the road, drive into this parking lot, that would not be your first thought. He's gone on to be with the Lord, but I tell you, he was so, he was so much an impact in, in, in our, on our campus. He was born in Mexico to a missionary family, Grew up in Mexico, became a missionary himself. And he and his wife, uh, in their old age, retired and moved to Texas. Their clothes, the clothes that they wore, I'm, I'm pretty sure they got them from the secondhand store, and they didn't really sin, seem to spend a lot of time to pick out the most trendy stuff that they could find doing that. The car they drove was very modest. And as far as being dependable, I I would be quite concerned on them going any great distance in it. The home they lived in was a very, very small, and I mean very small, cinder block building. Charlie did not have him back for years and years and years because he was a great speaker, because he wasn't. Having been one of the students that sat under him, I can tell you he was very difficult to follow. So why would Charlie have this man back year after year? There was not a student during those years that would say it was not worth it. Really amazing to have students say that because there was nothing entertaining about the man. Nothing about his appearance that really drew you to him. But one unmistakable thing. 
you never doubted for a moment that this man did not walk with Jesus. That this man did not have a deep, intimate relationship with his Savior. There wasn't a person I knew that was not convinced of that. Because I think he understood the truth that is laid out for us in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. You see, it's not about me. It's not about my education. It's not about my accomplishments. It's not about what I understand or what I'm able to do. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The one who has taken on all of my problem, who has taken on my prison, who has taken it to the grave and got up, leaving it all in the grave. Where, O death, is thy victory? And that resurrected, victorious one is now seated at the right hand of God this very moment in the place of authority. And it is he who lives in me. So the life which I now live in the flesh, dealing with all the things that I must deal with, I live by faith in the Son of God, not by faith in me, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness, if being of right standing before God comes through the law, which depends upon me, then Christ died needlessly. In other words, if you can be like Jesus, you don't need Jesus. And so where does this bring us? Verse 29, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants You are heirs according to promise. Did you see that? You are. If you belong to Christ, then you are heirs. So it's his promise. It's according to promise. The law could not make us Abraham's descendants. This could only be realized by faith. In Christ. Look at verse 14. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Verse 16. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed that is Christ. Faith in Christ. One more, one more passage to turn to. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, and I will start in verse 13. Romans four thirteen. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. This is made to his descendants, and we just saw from Galatians that we are his descendants. 
by faith. Verse 14, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. If you can be like Jesus, you don't need Jesus. I was teaching one time in Colorado. Uh, there was a student there, this, this young lady, who was really disturbed. She was in that prison. So frustrated. You know, she would read what is taught here, and she would try so hard to enact these things, and was so frustrated because she couldn't do it. There was no peace. There was no rest. There was no victory that she knew. And she had a really sad background. Every class she would come up, and and I think I taught 12 hours that that week, every class she would come up and ask 100 questions in tears. And finally, the, 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 the last class, it was a Friday she comes to me and she asked one more question. Are you telling me that all I have to do is trust Jesus? You see, that's something that we have no problem telling a non-believer. You need to trust Jesus. So she comes to me, are you telling me, a Christian, someone who has placed her faith in Christ, are you telling me that I, all I have to do is trust Jesus? Colossians 2.6, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord. So walk in him. I remember reading that verse one time in a sermon. My sister-in-law was in the congregation. And she said that was the first time in her life that she had ever heard that. Not that she hadn't been told that, but it was the first time she had heard that. It was simply reading from scripture. I receive Christ by faith. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord. So walk in him. We're so quick to tell the non-believer you need Jesus, but so slow to tell the believer you need Jesus. I told her yes. We're so afraid to say that, aren't we? We're so afraid to tell the believer, yes, you need Jesus. But Paul is emphatic on this emphasis. In these seven verses that you and I have looked at, Paul has used the word faith five times and the phrase to Christ, in Christ, or with Christ six times. Faith in Christ. Not faith in your worship. Not faith in your Bible knowledge. Not faith in your church attendance. Not faith in your witnessing. Not faith in you, but faith in Christ. 
That's what he's getting at in chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. You foolish Galatians. Galatians 3. Who has bewitched you? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Listen to this verse. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? I ran into this young lady a few years later. I was in Milwaukee, of all places, at a conference, stepped out of a room and bumped into her. We were both a little shocked to see each other. And so I wanted to know. It had been several years since we had had those conversations that week. I wanted to know, how are you doing? So we sat down and talked. And... She told me with tears that it had not been an easy road. But by her demeanor, she testified. It was just incredible to listen to her talk, especially when she told you of all that she had to go through. But to watch her face, to watch the demeanor, to hear what she had to say about it, she demonstrated, she testified that though it had not been an easy road, it had been the right road. It had been the road of peace. It had been the road of rest. It had been the road promised. I guess, really, to sum it up, what I'm telling you is this. We have been set free from the futility of self-reliance. And we have been given full adult standing in the family of God. All by faith in Christ, in His finished work. So is that enough for you? Or do you find that you are now seeking perfection once again by your flesh? which Paul calls foolishness. Are you living wise or playing the fool? Let's pray. Father, we thank you.